Every field of inquiry has its problems with experts disagreeing, often violently, but economics has a problem. After over 100 years of work, there are still disputes about its very foundations. And here to discuss that with me today is Professor Steve Keane. Now, Steve is the author of several books, with his latest being The New Economics, and he's also author of a new book out by Springer, which I am co-editor, and that's called Sustainability and the New Economics. Hello, Stephen, and thanks for joining me. In your chapter, you uh, talk about uh, classical economics and uh, the IPCC report. Can you summarise what you've said about that? The basic bottom line is that the IPCC report has to use experts in each field because economics is dominated by a particular school of thought called neoclassical economics. Everybody who was on the committee uh, on the economics chapter came from the economics, uh, the neoclassical school of economic thought, and they have convinced themselves that climate, climate change must be a small problem because we know capitalism can cope with anything, therefore it has to be only trivial challenge. And they have a chapter which basically describes climate change as less important than changes in demographics in terms of future impact upon human society. And it is, a, it is a travesty that the people who dominate economic analysis of climate change, starting from William Nordhaus and going forward from him, have all convinced themselves that climate change is no more than getting slightly warmer everywhere, and that'll make cold places better off and some warm places slightly less, off, less well off. And because uh, most of the world's GDP is produced in cold places, uh, climate change is going to be beneficial for quite, quite, a, quite a while. And at the at three, at three to six degrees increase in temperature, it'll be a few percent effect on GDP. And that is absolute total garbage. But that's what the economics chapter has, uh, has, has contributed. And uh, it's not so much the IPCC's report, uh, IPCC's fault, as simply the nature of the siloization of different ac- academic disciplines. There's no way this chapter should have been published. Uh, in a scientific document, which was what, unfortunately, the IPCC reports otherwise are. What kind of logic were they using to come to that conclusion? The only way I can explain it is so they begin from the point of view that capitalism is the world's most flexible social system and therefore it can cope with anything. And then they make assumptions to fit that initial starting point. Uh, So my favourite two, which I talk about a bit in the book, uh, the chapter in the book, are that, for example, Climate change will not affect industries which are not exposed to the weather. And that, of course, shows a complete lack of understanding of what climate change actually amounts to. But that was, was first written by um, William Nordhaus when he wrote a paper in 1991, and it's regurgitated in the IPCC report. So there's, they have what I call it, a frequently asked question. This is 10.3, the, the economic chapter. Of, I think it's volume of the second or third volume of the IPC report, Chapter 10, is on economic, uh, um, the, the economic effects of climate change. And this is Chapter 10.3. Are economic sectors, are other economic sectors vulnerable to climate change too? This is the answer. Economic activities such as agriculture, forestry, fisheries and mining are exposed to the weather and thus vulnerable to climate change. Other economic activities such as manufacturing and services largely take place in controlled environments and are not really exposed to climate change. That's on page 688 of that particular volume. Now, that is pig ignorant. 
that could be that is climate denialism is as part of the IPCC report. Yeah, I have to say it just leaves me speechless. Though I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't fathom that. Well, as an economist, can you give me your view on what you think the actual economic effect of climate change will be? Well, for example, they talk about a six degree increase in temperature um, as one of the one of the many predictions they've made. Is uh, Nordhaus has made several like this, and other people inside this particular subpart of the economic discipline have done similar predictions. And for six degrees of temperature increase, Nordhaus predicted an 8.5% fall in, in GDP compared to what it would be in the complete absence of climate change. Another paper, which literally came out this year, 2021, uh, was published in, um, I've forgotten, the, the Energy Economics Journal. And that said that a four degree increase in temperature would cause a 3.67% fall in global GDP compared to what it would be in the complete absence of climate change. Now, most scientists, if you told them, you know, Will Stephens being a good example, if you ask them what would be the economic and social impact of a four-degree increase in global temperature, they will tell you that something, they, they, they reckon that that might be, lead to a planet which could carry, if we were lucky, a billion humans. So a total collapse in human society. And for six degrees, uh, that is the level which caused the, the, the last great extinction when 95% of life forms on the planet went extinct. And yet these lunatics, and I've, I think there's no politer word I can use for them, are saying that would cause less than a 10% fall in, in global GDP. So it is complete distortion of what climate change is about. Yes, well, uh do you think that the measure of GDP itself is part of the problem? And I can only imagine the effect of GDP of trimming the world's population from almost 8 billion down to 1 billion. Yeah, yeah. that'd be an 80 or 90% fall if you were lucky, uh, if you can even measure it that way. GDP is, is rightly criticised for a whole range of reasons. But what I find striking about it is that if you look at data on GDP, which you can get from the World Bank, and data, global GDP, and data on energy consumption, which you can get from the International Energy Association, what you will find is there's a, between 1970 and 2017, so pretty much a 50-year period, you'll find a correlation between changes in global GDP and changes in energy consumption of about 0.8, an extremely high correlation between the two. So what that, what that tells me, this is from my very non-orthodox perspective on economics, fundamentally GDP is energy transformed into useful work. Okay. So, okay, so even though it's a bad, we've been criticised on all sorts of measures, as a measure of the extent to which we take the free energy we find on the planet and transform that into useful work, GDP isn't a bad measure. The problem is economic theory, the mainstream economic theory, completely omits the role of energy in production from their models. So they don't even see any relationship between a fall in energy and a fall in GDP. Now, if we hit six-degree temperature level increases, uh, the, 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 the catastrophic impacts on climate will be so great that we will completely shut down any form of carbon-based energy production. And at the moment, uh, non-carbon-based non energy production is only capable of producing about 15% of the energy we currently use. Now, even if you look at using other forms of energy more efficiently, you would still be looking at a 70 or 80% fall in GDP if we had to suddenly terminate 
any form of carbon-based energy production. So this is simply delusional work by economists. There's no other way to talk about it. Uh, this is not based on any, any shortcomings of the statistics, which is where you can blame GDP. It is simply delusional work by economists who start from the preconception that capitalism can cope with anything, therefore climate change can't be a serious problem. Do you, do you think part of their thinking comes from the fundamental flaws in uh, mainstream economics? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, mainstream economics is one of the – it's an amazing discipline when you look at it, and I think Yanis Varoufakis made the best summary of its situation. He calls it a magnificent failure. And the reason for calling that is when you look at where it started, it began in the 1870s, and it inverted the previous school of thought, which is called classical economics. This is now called – neoclassical. And what the classical school had was a, an objective theory of value. So value reflected the work that went into making something. Whereas the, post, the, the neoclassical said no value, it reflects subjective utility. And they had the idea of supply and demand you, you know, you, coming together to form price and stuff like that, the whole idea intersecting supply and demand curves. And when they first dreamt it up, it wasn't obviously wrong. But what's then happened is uh, mathematicians within economics have since disproven every last assumption that they made about the nature of how markets function, and yet they continue on. So what has happened is because it's a belief system for them, this belief in the market being a perfect allocation system and, and everybody getting you know, their marginal products, so it's a, it's a just system of distribution of income as well, it's become more and more ideological while retreating from its own mathematical flaws. So in that situation, one defence they would make is they say you can't judge a theory on its assumptions and therefore a neoclassical would make an absolutely outrageous assumption and so long as it, is, is it reaches the conclusions other neoclassical economists expect, they'll pass the thing, they'll referee it and publish it. And that's the only way you can explain stuff like Nordhaus's garbage getting published in refereed journals. Do you think one of the assumptions that's... Uh most egregious in this is that the environment is an externality that resources are effectively infinite and infinitely replaceable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a start, they, 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 if you go back 40 years in economics before what's called the Lucas critique changed the nature of the discipline, uh, and a lot of people you know, are pro the Lucas critique, I, I think it's, it's a disastrous stage in economics. Before that happened, Economists would produce what they call computable general equilibrium models of the economy. And I've got no time for using equilibrium as an organising concept. But the computable general side meant they had uh, an, a matrix showing you inputs and outputs. So you needed inputs to produce outputs, and the matrix was based on actual input-output data in each particular economy, and that necessarily had a link between your model of production and resource depletion, resource usage. So that was the mainstream 40 years ago. Now they have what they call a Cobb-Douglas production function, and that simply has outproduce using labour and capital, and they completely emit energy. So they are completely um, unable to even engage with a whole idea of resource limits, let alone the idea of waste. So those, when you have energy in your model, you necessarily have resource limits and you necessarily have waste, but they have neither. So they're actually living in a fantasy world uh, where these abstract concepts called labour and capital can come together and produce goods and services. Do you, do you see any signs that the IPCC is changing its uh, economic approach? No, uh, because that the IPCC is a duty-bound, effectively, to nominate people from the best universities 
with the best pedigree in economics. Well, that means uh, Harvard, uh, Princeton, Yale, which is where Nordhaus is, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, they supply the people who get selected by the IPCC, and they're universally mainstream economists. So they, they, the same garbage will come out. The only way you could stop it would be if scientists actually got involved and had to referee this stuff. And I'm sure any scientist read the 2014 report would be pulling his or her hair out as they read it because it's so appallingly bad. What, what are the main things you would change in uh, economic thinking to make it more sustainable? Well, I'd, for a start, I'd, you have to involve energy in your production model. So, uh, and I've done did that just recently. It's a very simple mathematical proof uh, that the way that economists normally treat a labour and capital is inputs you can multiply together to produce output. And they, if they bring energy and they say, well, let's multiply it by energy as well. And they treat energy as independent. Now, what that means is, you know, hypothetically, if you hit a factory with a lightning bolt and it had workers inside it, and for machines, the lightning bolt would, would help the machines and the workers to produce output. That's nonsense. Energy is not an independent in, in input. Energy is an input to labour and capital without which they can do no work. And that's what I've done with my simple mathematical modelling of it. Okay. So you'd start from that foundation. Yeah. And then that would mean that energy, what, 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 what the production system basically does is turn energy and raw materials into useful energy and useful goods. And that's your foundation. And then when you do that, you necessarily have waste. You simply cannot avoid that most of the energy is generated is waste energy and most of the materials you take through are generated as waste. So you're necessarily depleting your energy supplies. And if you're dumping that waste into the environment, you're damaging the environment, which feeds back on your productive capability. So we should be starting from that point of view. Right. Uh, how much time do you think we have? Do you think this is an urgent problem? Yeah, I think, I think, I th we all know within 20, 20 years, I think we have two decades if we're lucky uh, because we're already seeing serious changes to the climate at the level of temperature increase right now, 1.2, 1.3 degrees over pre-industrial. And most scientists are worried about anything approaching 1.5 and yet we're going, to, we're going to sail right past 1.5 sometime this, this decade. And it's a question of just how much volatility that causes in the climate and whether that starts to bring unstuck human civilization because we have evolved with a very stable climate over the last 10,000 years, the Holocene period. And this is dramatically destabilizing that stable climate. So uh, it, it, the, the usual, the IPCC economic stuff, all the mainstream economists are talking about only major impacts happening after 2200. I think they're wrong by 180 years. So you've stepped outside your academic field and now you're uh, dipping into politics. <clears throat> I understand you're a candidate for the new Liberal parties in the Senate for the upcoming election. Can you tell me what mm -hmm. motivated you to do that? Fundamentally disgusted at the state of Australian politics, which I think is an important factor, but you'd be equally disgusted by European, by, by English politics and American politics. Uh, not so bad in, in Europe and, and Asia, but generally speaking, career politicians have served us very badly. And I've been trying to influence them on economic theory and sim simply on climate change recently. And you are dealing with people who don't have the capacity to understand 
the issues you're talking about. They're, they're, they're main, they've, they've got selected because they've got serious case of narcissistic personality disorder, so they can climb the top of a political system, and they're being political faithful, and they'll do what the party, you know, the, the party system wants. That's how he gets selected. You get people who are congenitally unable to understand these complex systems problems. So in a sense, what I've, I've said for some time, I've been trying to get the ear of politicians and failed. It's why don't I try getting the voice of politicians and see that that does any, anything better. Now, I understand just before our conversation today, you were being interviewed by a Korean journalist. And is it mm-hmm. true that the South Korean government has adopted something like a Green New Deal? Can you tell me about that? Not, I can't really give you detail on that, but that, that, I think that's true. I mean, there's, there's possibly more awareness in Asia of climate change than you get in Europe or America. And I think there are those countries also still in a nation-building stage. They haven't got to the obsession with efficiency that the uh, Anglo-Saxon countries have got to. So the, they, they can see an advantage in moving to green technology. Certainly that's the case in China, um, uh, because at the same time they're putting in lots of coal-fired power stations because they have enormous energy needs to develop as fast as they're doing. But I think there is more awareness in Asia about the need for a, uh, a, a, a ecologically sustainable basis for production. Right. Now, one thing that I understand is lacking from the Green New Deal is any acknowledgement of the role of growth, that there is the illusion that perpetual growth is both possible and desirable. Can mm. you give me your take on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's illusional as well. Um, I mean, it, it's the whole growth religion becomes so pervasive that it's even hard for the limits to growth uh, people to carry on and saying, look, we may have overshot. But the only way you can look at what humanity has done is we've overshot the physical capacity of the planet to support us. And there has to be a period of a, a drop in our resource consumption at the very least, and probably also a drop in our output. And that the only way that can be managed, given the state of our societies, is that drop has to, the impact of that drop has to fall on the wealthy. It can't fall on the poor because they're already, the, the poor are already, you know, living hand to mouth fundamentally. And that's why the Gilets Jaunes revolted so badly at the idea of a carbon tax in France. So we have to impose the cost of adjustment on the rich. And that won't be easy. Yes. What's your take on a carbon tax or perhaps the carbon fee and dividend? Uh, ineffective, the sort of ineffective policy that economists like proposing, uh, because if you put a carbon tax or you put a carbon price, everybody pays the higher price. And the argument economists say, oh, yes, we can compensate the losers. Well, frankly, they never do. The losers lose. And that's why the Gilets Jaunes revolt occurred, because with the increase in the cost of diesel, courtesy of, a, I think, a carbon surcharge, surcharge that Macron brought in, um, they, they couldn't afford to cover all their costs anymore. So they went and went a huge revolt, you know, abolished the tax. So I think those things are always going to be ineffective. I'm actually proposing an alternative idea of bringing in a parallel price system. So you have every good having two prices. There's money price and it's carbon price, where the carbon price tells you the amount of CO2 generated in its production. And you have to pay both prices. One, of course, you make out of your wage or your profits. The second, the carbon price, is covered by a universal carbon credit, which would be given to every adult of a, of a society on a per capita basis. And because of the highly square distribution of income, 90 to 95% of the population would not use their ration. And the poorer you were, the less you would use. 
So you'd have excess carbon credits to trade. And then the wealthy, the top 5% or even smaller, would rapidly run out and have to buy carbon credits off the poor. So they would have an automatic redistribution from the top 5% to the bottom 95%. And it would give the bottom 95% a positive encouragement to want policies to cut, cut back on carbon dioxide generation. So I think we need policies like that that actually directly impose the cost of adjustment on the rich before anything's going to actually happen. Uh, is that one of the policies of the new Liberals? Yes, it is. Okay. Do you want to talk me through some of the other policies of the new Liberals? Well, one of the main ones is uh, on uh, on housing, in fact, which is a bit more you know, specific than the problem we're looking at. But we argue house prices have to fall. There's no such thing as affordable, expensive housing. So we intend bringing in a policy rule that limits the amount of money you can borrow to buy a house to some multiple of the rental income of the house, whether that's actual or imputed rental income. And currently, it would need to start at about 20 to 1. We want to bring it down to 10 to 1 over time, slowly, not not rapidly. And that, of course, would crucify anybody whose um, wealth is based on their house price. So what we want to do is, at the same time, uh, do what we call a monetary reset, inject money into the economy using the government's money creation capability on a per capita basis again. So everybody gets the same amount of money. Uh, those with debt must pay their debt down. Those without debt get government bonds equivalent to the difference between the reset and the amount of uh, debt they have. And those bonds earn income and can be also used as deposits for buying a house. So the idea is to maintain the equity of current house owners, not the price, let the price fall, but make the debt fall at the same time. So therefore, they come out equal in terms of the amount of equity they've got. And in fact, even those in debt would find themselves better off because it would take them less time to repay that debt. So this is based on the, on the ideas of modern monetary theory. And that's something which, again, sets us apart from the two major parties. We're always obsessing about the level of government debt. We're saying government debt is not a problem. It's private debt that matters, and we have to do things to reduce the private debt burden on the economy. Yes. Yeah, so can you give me a really, really simple explanation of modern monetary theory? It's fundamentally accounting. And I've built a software package called Minsky, which makes it possible for anybody to check this for themselves. If you look at um, uh, the, the money is fundamentally the liabilities of the banking sector. And in double entry bookkeeping, if you deposit $100 in the bank, the bank puts $100 in its vault, which is called its reserves. And that's the actual physical money. And they give you a receipt, which is your deposit statement, saying you've got $100 in the deposit. So the assets of the bank have gone up by 100 Their liabilities have gone up by 100 And you've got to do an operation on both the asset and the liability side. Now, when the banks lend, what they do is they say, Rod, that's a great idea to buy that house in Canberra for a million dollars. We're going to put a million dollars in your deposit account. And at the same time, we're going to record you owe us a million dollars. So their liabilities rise by a million, your deposit account. And the assets rise by a million, you owe them a million dollars as a loan. So that's how banks create money. The government creates money by putting it into the banking sector reserves. So they'll say, here's a great idea for a, you know, a public park in Canberra. Here's $10 million in the reserve account of the bank and here's $10 million in, in Canberra local council. And they create money without creating debt for the recipient of the money. Now, that's, that's the essence of modern monetary theory, and it therefore says government debt is not dangerous so long as you have the productive capacity in your economy. If you end up causing inflation or if you end up causing imports to come in, then that doesn't work. 
you have to have the productive capacity as well. But fundamentally, the government has an unlimited capacity to create money, which it should be doing to give us fiat-based money. But instead, because the uh, politicians have been obsessed by conventional economic theory that obsesses about government debt, they haven't created enough fiat-based money, so we've borrowed too much money from the banks and it's all gone into housing speculation. Yes, so my understanding is that MMT is not like a, a views a federal budget, not like a household budget. It doesn't have to be uh, in balance. Now, it's very contentious amongst economists. Uh, how do you deal with it? Economists don't know what they're talking about. Yeah? Economists learn from first year, they learn what's called the money illusion. They get a model, they, they get a model of a consumer eating, you know, eating apples and bananas. And they then have, you say, this is what they call a utility surface uh, linking points where the combination of lots of apples and a few bananas gives you the same utility as a few apples and lots of bananas. And then they say, what if we double all the prices and, and, and double your income? What happens? And the answer is nothing, sir. So they say, well, the nominal doesn't matter. It's all about the real economy. And they never actually end up modeling money. There's no economic course that teaches you how money is created. And to this day, they're still perpetuating myths about money creation. I had a, I had a go at uh, Paul Krugman in a recent article where he's talking about banks not lending out the reserves they have. Well, there's a simple reason they, they, don't, they can't lend out reserves unless all loans are in cash. And only if you understand the accounting do you know that. So economists are naive on how the banking sector works. And therefore, their, their judgments, which appear to be coming from wisdom, are coming from a naivety about the manner, manner in which money is created. Well, Steve, we're running to the end of our time now. Are there any final thoughts that you want to share? No, I think, think you've got enough to work on with there. But uh, the, the main thing I think we need to do for the future is we have to work at how to, to finance a transition to a sustainable economy. And the mainstream economists can't be used for that. You've got to use the modern monetary theory crowd and people like myself to understand how to do it. And the most important limitation is actually physical. Do we have the resources to do it? And the answer is to maintain our current level of income and GDP, frankly, no, we don't. We're going to have to go backwards because the physical resources needed for a minerals-based economy rather than an oil and coal-based economy simply don't exist. We don't have enough capacity. So that sort of understanding we have to get in our heads as well. And actually the best person doing work on that is an Australian mining engineer now working in Finland called Simon Michal. Yes, I've, I know Simon. I've met him, interviewed Simon. Good man. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Did you, Rod?